HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Underground Meats, an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a lovely day in the beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are kicking off our two-part series looking at lobster. You've tuned into the Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're going to start the series off with Marianne. Sorry. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Marianne is the executive director of the Maine Lobster Council, and you're going to help us kind of set the scene of the Maine lobster industry. And I, I thought we'd start with what I always think is the most obvious question is, you know, what's the, what's the season for lobster? I know this month uh, on the 15th, we're celebrating National Lobster Day. Does that mean the season is starting? Or can you take us through the kind of ups and downs of the seasonality of the, of the lobster? Yes, absolutely. So in Maine, we have an open fishery, which means there are no open and closed seasons. It's open year-round. So the fishery, the volume really goes um, with the biology of the lobster. So in the wintertime, when the water starts getting colder, the lobsters move offshore, and they become more dormant, so they're not feeding as much, so they're much harder to catch for fishermen because they have to go much farther offshore and the lobsters aren't as active in going into the traps, which is how we catch them. So right around now in June, as the water starts warming up, the lobsters start coming back in. So while there isn't a specific date, it's, you know, has some environmental conditions in place, but this is, June is really when the, the lobster fishery starts picking up as the lobsters start coming in closer to shore. Um, I think it's like so interesting that, I mean, wouldn't it, I would always just assume that any season would follow the, the biology of the product that you were looking to, to collect. But I, I know Maine's lobster industry is one of the most sustainable fisheries in the world. And it kind of makes, uh, I, I, I don't know, I guess I just find that in, that, that interesting. Um, what about um, the kind of main players in the lobster world? So obviously there's the fishermen, um, but can you kind of take us through who the other people um, are along the chain from 
that, that kind of help us get a lobster on our plate or on a dish in a restaurant? Oh, sure. So it starts out, as you said, with a fisherman, and we have over 5,000 uh, Maine lobstermen here and, you know, with licenses. And from them it goes to the, they're bringing it into a wharf, so we have about 350 what we call first handlers or dealers who are buying the lobster from the fishermen. And then from there it might go to a processing plant where they're turning it into lobster meat to make the lobster rolls that are so popular now. Or it could be going to a larger dealer than going out to supermarkets and restaurants that way. Got it. So I, know, I mean, I know actually here in New York tonight, they're they're hosting a tasting table is hosting their uh, lobster roll rumble. I think there's 30 different uh, restaurants and vendors all kind of competing to make the best lobster roll here in New York. Uh, yes, yeah, a very popular <laughs> event because people like lobster. People love lobster, but that hasn't always been the case. I mean, I've I've read that in you know servants contracts from you know around a century ago, there was actually stipulations that they would not be forced to eat lobster. You know, more than four four days a week. Is that just an old wives' tale, or you know, is there? A t- <laughs> we- I've seen documentation on that, so I think that that's probably true, but that certainly changed from from back then. <laughs> and what about the idea of um, new shells? You know, sometimes there's like there's lobster that has the super hard shell and then it's the softer shell. Um, is there, you know, some people seem to preference one over the other, but um, is there a reason to do that? Is there a real difference in the, the flavor of the meat? Oh, sure. Well, the interesting thing, just as a little background, is the lobsters, when they're uh, harvest size, which takes about seven years, they're shedding their shells about once a year. So they're getting their meat, you know, as they get larger, their meat gets fills up their shell, they shed that old shell, and they have a new, softer shell underneath. So it's not a different species or anything. You're just catching the lobster at a different time during the year or during its life cycle. So, uh, again, what I mentioned earlier, as the water's warming up and the lobsters are coming in, this is also when they start shedding. So right now, the lobsters that you'd see in the winter and spring tend to be more of a hard-shell lobster. And now, when we catch the majority of our lobsters here in Maine, June through November, that's when you're more like to see a soft shell lobster and the it's really a personal preference but there's a lot of people prefer the soft shell for the it's a very sweet flavor and a very delicate texture so it's you know it's a very appealing product and i would love to talk a little bit about the the economic impact that the the lobster industry has on maine um, I, I know it's something I always whenever I think lobster, it's immediately tied to Maine. But can you give us a sense of um, the volume of lobster that's coming uh, out of the state? What stays in the state? How much um, it's really driving towards the state's economy? Sure, sure. Well, we caught last year in 2012, for example, we caught over 126 million pounds of lobster. It's a lot of lobster. And that was valued at about um, $339 million at the dock, just paid to the fishermen. So generally you triple that, double to triple that to calculate the economic impact on the state itself. So we've only got about 1.3 million people in the state. Granted, we do get a lot of tourists here, you know, generally in the summer. So some of that lobster is staying in state. But with those kind of volumes, it's become much more of a of a national and international product. Yeah, and I'm curious about that, you know, because lobster, you know, you're often supposed to eat, see, you know, you, you see it as a fresh, a fresh item. I know growing up in the Midwest, you know, if I went to a nicer grocery store, they'd have lobster 
in, uh, you know, little aquariums there. Can you talk us through, like, what are the different ways that lobster leaves the state? You know, there's whole, there's pieces, there's can, is there frozen? Yeah, so whole obviously is sort of the iconic product, what people think of when they think of lobster. So live lobster still shipped from Maine all over the country and all over the world. So that obviously has some, it's a great product, but obviously has some logistical issues around it. So there's a lot of great new ways to eat lobster, too. Lobster meat is very popular now, and the lobster rolls, as I said, are are really taking off, and we're seeing them in more and more places. But also really popular are lobster tails. You see those a lot in restaurants, and it's much easier for restaurants to, if they're just serving lobster tail, to order just that product rather than getting a whole lobster and having to break it down themselves or have their kitchen staff do that. So there's also cocktail claws, we call them, you know, little lobster claws, and a whole variety of um, ready-to-eat products like soups and pizzas and lobster mac and cheese and that type of thing. So how do you, I mean, I know, you know, if I see, I see the ads on TV for like, you know, Red Lobster and, and they're offering like whole lobster or lobster pieces at these kind of insanely low prices. Is there like a primary and a secondary market for lobster? I mean, is there some kind of quality demarcator that allows them to, to be such low cost for organizations like that? Or are they just getting lobster from a totally different source? Well, it's, it's part of it's a supply and demand. So when there's a lot of lobsters coming in, you tend to see the price go down. Also, companies that are buying direct probably are able to pass on some savings to their customers. And, and with, with, um, with more processed product available to restaurants, they're not required to have the labor in their kitchens to manage it, which might, even though they might be paying a higher cost for the lobster, might end up helping them in the long run. Got it. Um, and with regards to the lobster that we're seeing come out of Maine, you know, I've seen it referred to as Maine lobster. I've seen it referred to as American lobster. I mean, how is, is it, how is this, the species kind of specific to that area? Um, or, and how does it maybe compare to lobster that you might find in other parts of the world? So the, the lobster that we catch is Homaris americanus, and that is found really from Canada down the East Coast um, through New England, it's, it's really commercially harvested in sort of northern, you know, New England, the northeast, and Canada on the east coast. And that's the only place Homaris americanus is found. And what's really distinctive about our lobster are the big meaty claws. So lobster from other parts of the world have, or just have the meat in the tail. Okay, so then you, I mean, the rest of the body of the animal is essentially of, of no use from a culinary perspective. Right. I guess unless you wanted to make a lot of lobster stock, you could use the claws. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uses for lobster in that way. And what about nutrition? I mean, I, I, I think people often identify eating lobster with a lot of butter or mayonnaise. Um, I, you know, I like mine pretty straight up. But where does it fall in the line of um, kind of folks who are more health conscious and want to be, you know, choosing something that fits into a, 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 their diet? Well, if people eat it straight up, as you do, they're in really good shape because it's incredibly low in fat, low in calories, and low in cholesterol. And it's kind of a misconception that it's high in fat or high in cholesterol, and I think it's because it's so often partnered with butter or mayonnaise, which you really don't need. A a nice soft-shell lobster, the flavor is so good. If you just try it without those, people find that they don't actually need them. 
And can you tell us just a little bit more about the the Maine Lobster Council? I mean, there's so many different organizations that are working to preserve the fishery, protect the fishery, be liaisons between, you know, fishermen and dealers, environmentalists. What is really the role of of the Maine Lobster Council? What role do you guys see yourself playing in the lobster community? So we're we're exclusively a marketing board. So we represent the interests of the entire industry, both the fishermen, the dealers, everyone, and we're funded by the industry. So the fishermen and dealers pay a marketing surcharge every year. Then the funds go to the Lobster Promotion Council, and we, you know, do marketing programs to help promote the industry. So how do I know that I'm eating a Maine lobster? If I'm, you know, in California or Michigan, what should I be looking for, asking my kind of fishmonger for? Well, if you've, if you've got a soft shell, you're very likely to be having a Maine lobster because this is primarily where they're harvested. Other than that, you can look for the bands. And one of the things that we're working on now is helping people identify that because a lot of times Maine lobster is used more of a generic term for Homaris americanus no matter where the lobster is coming from. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to encourage people to really ask about where the lobster is coming from. So your fishmonger should know where their lobster comes from. Uh, the live lobsters have bands on them that generally say what state or what country they're from, so that can help as well. And a lot of the packaged products, if you're getting tails or meat or that kind of thing, identify where their lobster comes from as well. And then one other thing, this is a good test, um, is the Marine Stewardship Council certification, because right now Maine is the only lobster fishery that has that certification. So if you saw an MSC logo, you'd know it was Maine Lobster. And what are, what are they certifying? I mean, not the fact that it's from Maine, but what? No, that's just sort of a side benefit from the marketing. Got what it. they're certifying is that it's a sustainable fishery, that the lobster is being harvested in a way that's sustainable so that it can continue being commercially harvested and so that it's not harming the environment. Well, or other species. I want to talk about a little bit about that sustainability and some of the challenges um, that are arising with regards to, you know, climate change or other seasonal factors. I know 2012 was a really wonky season. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Sure, sure. Well, the last four years we've had really record harvests, um, which is great, and you know that's in part due to the sustainability measures that we've had in place for 150 years. But last year um, was really just, uh, they explained when the lobster's coming in in June. What happened last year, the lobster started coming in and shedding early, much earlier than people had expected, really middle to the end of May. And because that's not usually the case, the industry just wasn't ready for it. There are Canadian fisheries that are generally supplying product at that time of year, and our processors weren't online and ready to process lobster. We don't have a lot of tourists in Maine at that time, so it was a new shell product that was coming in, so it couldn't be shipped very far, so it needed to either be eaten locally or processed into meat or tails, and uh, so without processing plants to take it and without tourists to eat it locally, it was just ended up being uh, a lot of lobster on the market before we were ready for it. So I'm assuming that the kind of increase in supply um, really drives down the price. Did that kind of regulate as the season went on and those other systems came into place, or um, was it just kind of playing catch-up throughout the 2012 season? It stabilized a little bit, but again, it was a record year with quite a big increase over the previous record year, so the prices were definitely soft. 
throughout the season. You know, we're in, you know, we're in the first week of June now. So what is the season looking like for 2013? Well, a little, I can, ask me next year and I can tell you, (laughs) so far this year it looks more like a typical year where we're just starting to see softshell lobsters coming in right now and not in huge numbers yet. So this is, looks looks to be more like a typical year, but all indications uh, are that we'll still be catching quite a lot of lobsters this year. So it should be another good year for landings. Well, I hope to be eating a lot of lobster this year. Um, well, I hope everybody does. But. <laughs> as, you know, executive director for the Maine Lobster Council, I, I have to look to you for some inspiration with regards to uh, preparing lobster. I mean, do you have a preferred kind of method or recipe or, or thing that we should look to um, to mix up our lobster consumption this summer? Well, sure. It's always nice to have a few, you know, have a nice lobster bake, and you can do that at home. We've got recipes on our website, lobsterformaine.com. So you can, if you don't have a beach nearby, you can do the lobster bake at home, which is always fun and kind of an experience. But lobster rolls are also great. It's a really easy way. If you get some meat, it's a really nice, light meal. It's a great way to do it. You don't need much else. But other than that, we've got over 500 recipes on our website. So no matter what you're looking for, we've we've got them um, in eggs Benedict instead of the ham, which is great if you want to try it for breakfast or kind of have a fancy brunch. Uh, there, you know, in salads, the soups are great. So there's just a there's so many different ways you can use lobster. Awesome. Well, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us, helping us kick off the series. Uh, we really appreciate having you on. Sure. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be on the line with Do- Dr. Robert Bayer. He's the director of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine, and we'll continue our conversation on lobster and lobster industry. You're listening to Mohegan Sun. Off of the Pasta Move EP presented by Full Service. Keep it locked for more Farm Report. Underground Meats is an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. They use small farms from southwest Wisconsin to source their meat. The animals are raised on pasture for their entire lives by farmers who care about animal welfare. 
While Underground Meats uses European traditions, they also use ingredients from the upper Midwest to try to create new types of salamis, experimenting with both ingredients and techniques. The salamis are made using heritage breeds, mostly red wattles, tamworths, berkshires, and mule foots. Try their award-winning cured pork shoulder and goat salami. To learn more and purchase products, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. The following message is brought to you by the American Farmland Trust. Tomatoes, potatoes, squash, and strawberries are a few products of so many brought fresh to local markets by farmers who represent the true heritage of America. Yet, the fresh, delicious bounty found at farmers' markets each week might be at the greatest risk of being lost as farmland is consumed by sprawl and development. I Love My Farmers Market celebration marks the fifth year American Farmland Trust has hosted a summer-long event to honor our nation's hard-working family farmers and to raise the national awareness about our bountiful farmers markets. The celebration encourages consumers to pledge to support family farmers by shopping directly from them this summer. A pledge is a commitment to spend $10 at your farmers market that week. The goal is to collect $1 million in pledges to shop at farmer's markets before the celebration concludes at midnight on September 9th, 2013. I Love My Farmer's Market celebration is part of the American Farmland Trust's No Farms, No Food campaign. Nationwide, the food and farming system contributes nearly $1 trillion to our national economy. According to the most recent National Resources Inventory, we've been losing nearly 1 million acres of farmland every year. For all of these reasons and more, conserving and protecting farmland for future generations is something we can all celebrate. For more information on the I Love My Farmers Market celebration or to pledge, visit lovemyfarmersmarket.org. For more information on American Farmland Trust, visit farmland.org. Thanks for tuning in. We are back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are exploring the world of lobster in the next couple of weeks. On The Farm Report, we're on the line now with Dr. Robert Bayer, director of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine. Dr. Bayer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Well, so in the first half of the show, um, Marianne from the Maine Lobster Council took us through some of the nuts and bolts um, of the industry, and I wanted to talk a little bit more into the sustainable sustainable fishery practice that uh, is Maine has been so well known for. You know, I've read a cu- on a couple of sites that it's identified as a hundred and sixty year old fishing industry, and I'm just wondering how how do you count when when that started, and was there kind of an, an initial kind of sustainability push that long ago, or or why is that hundred and sixty year the the starting point for the fishery? Well, I think it goes back, uh, actually, even further, further than that, um, probably to colonial times. Um, but the, the push for sustainability really has come from the fishermen, and that's been going on for probably at least 50 years. Uh, the regulations that we use that are well supported by lobster fishermen in, in Maine and New England uh, involve throwing back more lobsters than we keep. Uh, we, co- we throw back lobsters that don't reach a minimum size, um, and that translates into, into about a quarter, one and a quarter pound lobster. We also throw back lobsters that are in the five pound range because they produce massive numbers of, of eggs and are very important in uh, sustaining the uh, population. So I, I know I've spent some time out um, lobstering with some friends up in Maine, and each it, I was really amazed that each and every single lobster that they pulled out of a trap got 
got measured by hand to, to meet those specifications. And I'm wondering, you know, have those ranges remained pretty steady over the last 50 years, or is that something that's evolved as kind of the science and understanding of the species has evolved? Well, the minimum size has gone up slightly. Um, and the other thing that I didn't mention earlier that's pretty important in maintaining our uh, lobster population is a conservation mark that uh, fishermen put on buried or egged females. They cut a notch in the tail, and uh, that notch will stay through several molts, which means it's present. It could be up to 10 years, uh, depending on, on uh, the size of the lobster. And that lobster cannot be landed, and uh, that is it's a law. It's a landed prohibition. So we protect millions and millions of additional lobsters uh, that are part of the breeding stock. Wait, can we? I just want to touch on two two points there. One, a landed lobster just means a, a lobster that you know is going into the market, correct? Right. It's legal size. It doesn't have eggs. It doesn't have a notch cut in the tail. So that is a legal landed lobster. So if I pull a, a lobster out of a trap, um, I'm assuming it's re- you know it's relatively apparent. If I if I see eggs, then it's my kind of duty responsibility as uh, a lobster fisherman to notch the tail, uh, and then that sends a signal for anyone who catches the fish going forward. Um, but obviously not all females are, are thrown back, so it's only if there's kind of active egg production when they're pulled right. out of the water? Right. If, if, you, if you can see the eggs, uh, then the lobster must go back. Got it. Got it. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the, the zoning, because... You know, it's not as though, I, my understanding is it's not as though that every fisherman can go out in, in, in Maine and fish wherever they want or that just anyone can go out. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the permitting and zoning process and, and how that is uh, sculpted to, to maintain the sustainability of the fishery? Well, the, uh, the zones are a really uh, defined area where your license says you can fish. And... Uh, you, you can't step over the line uh, to any other zone, and um, it, it's, uh, it's a lot of this is self-enforcement, but it's also enforced by law. So it, then that's kind of core to the success of the fishery is this, this aspect of self-policing. Well, I think there is a certain amount of, of uh, self-policing. Um, fishermen know who the uh, scoff laws are and uh, aren't going to stand for it. On, on your website, uh, it's, it's mentioned a couple times that you, the role of your organization is to pursue non-political research. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and why that's an important kind of a guiding principle for you? Well, uh, we're not involved in advocacy in any way, and I think that that means that the science that we do uh, has uh, credibility, uh, and we can take it to um, state or federal regulators, and, and there's no question about it because we don't take an advocacy role. And we do more than, than uh, just uh, uh, fisheries assessment and, and those things that are related to that. Um, we're also interested in, in using every bit of the lobster that we can. We're interested in, in, in product development uh, from our lobsters. For example, uh, one of our students was involved in a project where we've taken ground-up lobster shell, which normally goes to the landfill or uh, to compost, and we're putting it in a golf ball. And it's a biodegradable <laughs> golf ball. You, I don't know whether you've heard about this or not. Uh-uh. But it's, it's sort of an example of something that we do. And the idea in, 
adding value to a throwaway is at some point this is going to filter back to the uh, fishermen in a higher price for their lobster. Interesting. Now, this I mean, where did you even start with the golf ball idea? I mean, it's not so you're looking at kind of non-edible uses, I'm assuming for the shell and and there's no um you know, there's no kind of repurposing that for feed for other species. I mean, like you see in the livestock industry. Uh, this is another possibility. I, I think we can use shell for all kinds of things. Uh, it's, it's loaded with calcium and phosphorus. Uh, there's also chitin in the shell that uh, has some uh, interesting biological properties. So we're interested in, in, in uh, edible to animal and people type products, but uh, also uh, non-edible products like the golf ball. We talked a little bit in the earlier segment uh, about the kind of different players along the uh, the lobster chain, but there's also um, the lobster industry really supports a number of industries, fuel, dealer, fuel dealers, banks and insurance companies, uh, trap and, and rope fishing suppliers, boat and boat sales, repairs, maintenance. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the importance of like maintaining those auxiliary industries to the success of the fishery overall? Well, this is all support that's, that's needed. So it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. I mean, one needs the other. And the other really important one that uh, you hadn't mentioned is bait. Uh, it takes about a pound of bait to catch a pound of lobster. And uh, although we're trying to find ways to use less bait, it's, uh, it's, it's an important factor. And what, I mean, what is kind of the traditional bait that is used for lobster? The most common bait is herring. And it's uh, Atlantic herring that uh, it's good quality. Uh, we could eat it. It, and but it's not you're not like putting a whole fish obviously in into a trap as bait. I mean that that the bait is essentially a byproduct of another use for that fish. Is that correct or no? Actually, it's not. Okay. Uh, at one time, a lot of the bait came from the sardine canneries, and it was the leftover cuttings. But that that hasn't been the case for a long time. And actually, the sardine industry in Maine is is completely gone. Um, the remaining sardine cannery in North America is in Canada. So this is a targeted fishery for bait, uh, for catching lobsters. So what are the aspects that go into maintaining the, the bait supply, and, and, and how is that doing? Well, it's, a, it's a, a totally separate industry, supplying bait to uh, the lobster fishery. And it's, um, it, there's, there's just barely, I'd say right now there's just barely enough bait. So one of the areas that we have looked at, for a number of years, uh, knowing that this is, is something that's coming, is alternative baits. And we're not there yet, but uh, we're still working on it. And you guys also do some programming for kind of K-12 through education. Why, why is that an important facet of your work? Well, education is, is, is part of what we do, and uh, we, we want uh, school kids uh, to know about the lobster and the lobster fishery. Uh, one of the things that, that I really enjoy doing is going to the small island schools. These are one-room schools where you might be talking to uh, anywhere from uh, five to uh, a dozen kids, K through eight, uh, and they're usually from families that rely on the lobster fishery, and some of them know a fair amount about it, but a lot of them don't. So they're, they're really fun to uh, to chat with. I, I'll tell you one, uh, one story about this, and... and uh, a couple of years ago, I went to one of the island schools. There were three kids in the school that year. Two of them were sick. 
So there was one kid. <laughs> Fortunately, I imported a couple because I wanted my grandchildren to have this experience of the one-room school. Mm-hmm. So it, it just doesn't happen. So uh, we had three kids, and it, it was an amazing day, uh, even uh, beyond what uh, I had to talk about with these kids. Which I'm sure was also amazing. <laughs> now, so, I mean, I think you highlight an interesting point about kind of the culture of Maine. You know, there's a, a variety of different types of communities. And I, and I have to imagine that kind of information and resource sharing is a challenge and facilitating, you know, cooperation between fishermen and scientists is, is also something that you do a fair amount of work kind of, you know, communicating and, you know, I'm, I don't know, essentially selling to the fishermen. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some challenges to that aspect of your work and and um, some strategies for in- increasing the lines of communication and understanding among such a kind of diverse population? Well, a lot, a lot of it is, is based on trust, and it's taken a long time. Uh, I, I've been doing this for over, over 30 years, and I'd say the first 10 uh, was developing that trust so that uh, fishermen would, would come to me uh, with issues, uh, particularly lobster health issues that might be sensitive, uh, and... Um, and, and then the doors opened. Once that happened, uh, the phone started to ring. But again, it took about ten years, and um, I've been in this long enough that I, I think um, we've opened a lot of doors uh, to communication. So it's it, it's there. We also do something that's kind of interesting uh, to uh, get to a fairly significant number of fishermen. We do an annual U.S. Canada Lobster Fishermen's Town Meeting. And it's open. I mean, it's an open discussion. The first year we had no agenda at all. And we just wanted the fishermen to tell us, what do you see on both sides of the border? And what do you think we ought to be doing? And each year we would come up with action items, things that we ought to be working on. Um, and we alternate years. One year it's in, in uh, Canada, and the other year it's uh, it's in Maine. And it's, it's really fascinating. If you or your listeners have... Uh, the time or inclination, the, the transcripts are on our website, lobsterinstitute.org, and the discussions are, are really amazing, what, uh, what these people think about. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Now, I know that uh, 2012 was kind of uh, an outlier as far as the lobster season went. We heard a little bit from Marianne in the last segment, but from a you know scientific perspective, um, did you have any kind of takeaways or lessons learned, or did that season in particular highlight any kind of pressing future concerns for you? Well, I, I think that it's highlighting some of what I think are impacts of climate change. And uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to predict what's ahead. Uh, right now, the fishery is strong, and, and it looks like it is for the foreseeable future. But uh, who knows? It, it's really difficult to, to uh, predict what's, what's going to happen next year. I would say that um, based on uh, what's on the early seasons in, uh, in uh, Canada, uh, they're catching massive numbers of lobsters, and I suspect we're, we're going to have a good year as well. Great. Well, Dr. Bayer, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking some time out to share some of your expertise. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, thanks, thanks again, and, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. I want to send a special shout-out to Alyssa Goldman, who helped me produce this show, and my engineer, Joe Galarraga. Tune in next week. We'll be continuing the conversation of lobster, kind of uh, speaking with with some folks who are out on the boats and up on the docks. Uh, We'll be talking with Robin 
Eldon of uh, Penobest East and Chad Dore of Dore Lobster. So tune in next Thursday, 1 o'clock, for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, we are dancing in the studio as always when we hear that Grow NYC Green Market Update music come on. And excited to be on the line with Jean Hodesh of New York City's Green Markets. Jean, where are we heading this week? Hi, Erin. So this week we're going to stick around in Queens and head over to the Elmhurst Hospital Green Market, which just reopened for its third season this past Tuesday. So I was there on opening day and it was. So much fun. It was such an incredible way to start the day. There were um, remarks from the community board members, representatives from city council member Daniel Drum's office, hospital administrators, our director Michael Hurwitz, and um, the show, the, the group that sold the entire show was the Elmhurst Hospital House Band, who were just incredible. Um, it was nurses and security guards, and anyone who works in the hospital is able to join the house band, and they're really good. So they were singing Beatles ballads and Gloria Gaynor songs, and um, people were just showing up, dancing, shopping, hanging out, sharing recipe ideas, and enjoying the start of summer. Awesome. So what are the uh, farmers and products that we can be expecting to find out at the market? Sure. So this is a, a really nice neighborhood market. It's located just outside the hospital. So they have two new producers this year, which is great. They have Apple State Hilltop Farm, who offers honey and eggs from Sullivan County. And then also Gayaski Produce will be bringing in vegetables from Suffolk County on Long Island. So they have a really terrific array of products. Um, in a couple of weeks, Luciano Gonzalez of Fresh Radish Farm is going to come back to the market, and he'll be bringing Mexican specialty herbs like papalo, epazote, and eventually, when it gets warm enough, tomatillos. Um, on opening day, it was great to see all the hospital employees and neighbors out shopping for fresh spring produce from RNG Produce. Um, they were bringing in the first baby beets, which people were really excited about, and all sorts of wonderful salad greens from Orange County. And Meredith's Bakery is there offering delicious pies, muffins, and breads. And next to them is Tarun Orchards, who has all sorts of stored apples saved uh, and that are still nice and fresh from last fall, and pretty soon they'll have stone fruit. I have to say, this sounds like making you know a trip to the hospital kind of a much more lovely experience. <laughs> That's our aim. <laughs> so, so assuming that you know we're heading out to the market just to kind of check out this kind of interesting overlap of markets and, and public health interventions, um, but then maybe we want to hang around and check out some other things in the neighborhood. Where would you send us? 
Sure. So one of my favorite things, I always say this about this job, is getting to go out to our markets that aren't necessarily by where I live um, and visit them because it's such a great way to see the city and see the way that our markets fit into the neighborhoods where they're located and the communities that support them. So on my walk from the subway over to the market, um, I passed a park where people were doing Tai Chi in the morning. Um, there is an amazing, amazing restaurant row. I went out this winter for brunch with Robert Seitzema, who was still at the Village Voice at that time. We went out for Szechuan food, but also in this restaurant row, you'll find incredible Thai. There's an Argentinian steakhouse. Um, there are dumpling houses. Um, so Robert led me over to Sweet Yummy House, which uh, we had all kinds of flask noodles, um, and he actually wrote a great blog report recently about his favorite places to eat in Elmhurst. So I'll have you guys post that on our on our webpage for the show so people can check it out if they head out to visit. But I think my favorite thing about this market is that you'll see people from the neighborhood next to nurses still in their uniforms, all shopping for healthy food and just being happy to be outside and, and taking good care of themselves. Awesome. Well, thank you. It sounds like a fantastic uh, space to, to spend the afternoon, so we'll have to get out there soon. What else is what else is going on at the market? What else should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, so um, we have Strawberry Shortcake Eating Contest coming up this Saturday at Grand Army Plaza and then on Sunday at Cortellu. Um, at Union Square on Saturday, the Batali brothers are doing a book signing with their dad, Mario Batali, so check them out, buy some cookbooks, maybe get a uh, new cookbook for your dad for Father's Day coming up. Uh, on Saturday, also uptown at the 82nd Street Green Market, we have a rescheduled cooking demo. It was supposed to happen last weekend, but now it's happening this weekend with uh, Chef A.J. Black from Il Tesoro Restaurant making fresh pasta and a seasonal sauce. Um, and then also on Saturday, lots of things are happening this Saturday, in Socrates at our Socrates Sculpture Park Green Market, it's the Long Island City Bike Parade is taking place. So there's going to be bike maintenance and safety and people will teach you how to pump up your tires and get fitted for bike helmets. That's happening. And then also simultaneously the park is hosting the first, uh, the inaugural Northwest Queens Food Day. So people will doing, be doing cooking demos and I think Big Compost will be there talking about how you can compost your food scraps and also there will be a potting demonstration to teach people how to grow herbs at their house. Um, and then the big news that we wanted to talk about for upcoming events, we are going to have a series of night markets this summer. Ooh. So the first one is starting in July, July 17th at Union Square, which just so happens to be Green Market's birthday. Um, look for news and more details to come. But I can tell you now the, the market will be open that night um, until 8 o'clock, and we have a lot of vendors who will be there during the day at the market as usual, and then they'll stay through the evening so you can come by after work. And we have a bunch of neighborhood restaurants who will be coming in to sell prepared food. So stay tuned for a list of who those restaurants are, but they are pretty awesome. It's an event you won't want to miss. We're going to have uh, music, we'll have beer, and it'll be just a great opportunity to hang out in the market under the night sky in the middle of the summer. Oh, man, that sounds perfect. Awesome. Jean, thank you so much. Always tons going on. It's great to hear. Great. Talk to you soon. Of course. So if you want to find out more uh, or catch up on what's happening in your local market, get a sense of what farmers will be where and uh, what days and dates are happening in your neighborhood, definitely visit them, www.grownyc.org. Uh, also, more info on cooking, cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, so much going on. Check them out on your favorite social media platform, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Grow NYC is kind of everywhere you want to be. So get out to the market this weekend and enjoy. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned in. 
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.